In case you haven't sensed it yet, there is much to celebrate in the life of this church, um, from our graduates a moment ago to uh, the FRA, which we will celebrate here in just a little bit, and of course, our new members, which is always exciting to welcome new members into the church. Last week was great, too, because after the morning service, we went out uh, to the river in the afternoon. Um, The Lord gave us uh, this beautiful window to have an outdoor baptism service. Um, there were, there was on the radar, there was storms and rain everywhere, but we got this little sliver of sunshine. It was beautiful. And, uh, I was able to baptize eight more people plus one, uh, reaffirmed their baptism, which makes a total of 17 this year already. It's amazing what God is doing in our midst. We give him praise. Don't, don't take for granted. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Don't take for granted what, what the Lord is doing in this season of the life of this church. Don't take it for granted. Now, in the new membership uh, liturgy that we, we typically read on a Sunday morning like this that comes from the EMC discipline, and by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but I shortened it this morning just because we had such a full, uh, full morning ahead. But in that liturgy, it says this, these people seeking membership have met all the requirements for membership, have learned the nature of its duties and privileges, and have been instructed in the teachings and the aims of the EMC. Now, one of those teachings that we cover in the membership class is the EMC's position and view of the scriptures. What is our view of the scriptures here? Um, well, we, we hold that all 66 books of the Bible are inspired by God. They are true in everything that they affirm from cover to cover. We don't just say that truth is contained in here, as if you could flip through the pages and try to find where you think, what you think is true and what you don't think is true. We believe his word is true, all of it, from cover to cover. And we believe, because it is inspired of God and because it is true, that it is also authoritative for all of life. But listen, you and I who are, are students of the Bible, who love the Bible, and even if you don't fit in either of those categories, if you're even vaguely familiar with the Bible— you, you may know that, yes, okay, so maybe all of the Bible is inspired, but not every part is as equally inspiring, right? You know what I'm talking about, those passages, in, say, in Leviticus, where um, certain commands of the law are repeated multiple times, and you're wondering, why are we reading the same thing over and over? Of course, there's a purpose for that, but our instinct when we come across that is to, is to ask why. Why are we doing this, going over this again? Or how about the passages in Numbers that record the names and the numbers of all the Israelite tribes? That makes for some scintillating reading, doesn't it? Or what about the first nine chapters of First Chronicles that goes through all the various genealogies? I know when you're sharing Jesus with people on the street, you go straight to First Chronicles to tell them about the good news, don't you? Now listen, I'm not trying to diminish the value of those passages. Of course, it's all God's word, it is all true, and it is all relevant and applicable to our lives. But some passages, it takes more work to get to the relevance and to get to the practical application than others, doesn't it? Well, the chapter we're in this morning is not one of those chapters. We are in Romans chapter 8. We were there last week, we're there again this week, we will be there for the next couple of weeks And many have described this chapter as something of a pinnacle of God's revelation. It is like a a chapter of chapters, so to speak. And it doesn't take much work at all to see the immediate relevance and application to our daily lives. But that is not to say that it doesn't take any work 
Of course it takes work to get to the, the heart of the truth. And that is what I want. I don't want to just get to the truth. I want to get to the heart of the truth. Right to the center of it. What is this saying to God's people, even unto me? And many people, in my humble opinion, come to this passage and they take what is said here either for granted, in a, not in a good way, or they miss what is being said here altogether. And it is my hope and prayer to avoid both of those mistakes here this morning. So if you would, turn to page 909 if you grabbed one of the guest Bibles, or wherever your Bible, you can find Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read the first eight verses here for us together from the New Living Translation. Verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature or flesh, if you see that in your translation. Flesh is Paul's word for sinful nature. It's not just the physical part of you. It is the totality of the human person, human nature that has been corrupted by sin. So God did, verse, um, still in verse 3 here, so God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Now, you may have noticed there in verse 1 in the NLT, it begins with, so now. Or perhaps in your translation, the first word was, therefore. And of course, those are words that indicate that what follows is an explication of what came before. In other words, Paul's saying, in light of what I have just said to you, I want you to know these following things. Now, the immediate context, of course, is chapter 7. It is a chapter that in many ways, um, in my opinion, is a chapter that is marked by a hopelessness and even a despair, right? It's, it's, it's the one that concludes there in verse 24 of that chapter, um, Paul saying, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Now, you are a human being with a human nature, and you know full well exactly that cry. Every person in here, I believe, at some level or in some way, has experienced this cry of the man in Romans 7. It's the cry of one who desires to live a righteous, godly life, but is keenly aware of his inability to do so in his own power and strength. This, this man described here in the, in the middle of that chapter is like a vignette. It's like a, a snapshot of, of life lived according to the flesh where one is aware of the truth of, of God and, and the truths of chapter six that came before it but is 
powerless to experience and live those things out. You might be saying, well, what was in chapter 6? Remember, we want to read everything within the context of, this, of, of where it falls in the scriptures. And if chapter 7 is this awareness that I can't live out what was in chapter 6, well, what was in chapter 6? Well, chapter 6 is this beautiful description of our new life in Christ. What it means to be a Christian. What it means to, to, to identify with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It is, one, it is a, a life lived in this sort of constant, continuously state of resurrection. The power of Christ's resurrection is in you. It's a life where the tyranny of sin has been broken. And that is something affirmed eight times in that chapter. The power of sin is broken in you. The power of sin is broken in you over and over and over again, leading Paul to conclude there in verse six that we are therefore no longer slaves to sin. But then you come to chapter seven and there's this, this man, this voice, which I believe is a rhetorical device used by Paul to, to help us understand what it's like to be aware of chapter six, but not there yet. Right? It's, it's someone who's awakened to the realities of the human condition, but lacks the inner strength to move out of it. He's a man hopelessly enslaved to this, literally in verse 24, body of death. This, I'm captive, I'm powerless, I'm enslaved to this body of death. I sense the vast gulf that separates me and my own sinful wickedness and the absolute holiness of God. In short, I think chapter 7 represents who and what you and I are by nature. It is the snapshot of who we are by nature. And I think chapter 8 is what we can be by grace. 7 is who we are by nature. But 8 is what we can be by grace. And it begins, in case you missed it, with that very well-known and all-important verse, verse 1, that says, There is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And that is because Jesus has accomplished for us what the law could never have accomplished. And when I come across something like that, I ask the question, I pull back and say, Well, if the law was unable to accomplish something, what was its purpose? What was its role in this whole sort of moving from the reality of chapter 7 into the reality of chapter 8. And the answer, of course, among other things, is the law prepared us for Christ by demonstrating just how powerless we are to live a righteous life. It reveals the, the holy character of God, and almost like a mirror, it reveals how much we are unlike what we see. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, this is from the ESV, by the way, because I prefer this rendering in that translation. Galatians 3, 24 says, the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, that word guardian is the Greek word pedagogos, from which we get the, the English word pedagogue, right? So it's this idea of like a, a caretaker that's overseeing children, Someone who's, who's there to, to watch over them, there to take care of them, to protect them, to, to discipline them, to guide them, to instill in them values, to, to teach. It's, uh, some translations say tutor. It's like a, a tutor that is investing into the lives of a child until they come of age. Paul's saying that the law 
prepared us for the coming of age in Christ. Paul's use of the word is not to suggest that once one comes of age, that the law no longer has any value for the Christian life. That's a mistake. To think that just because you have been justified by grace, that the law has no value or merit to your life. That'd be like saying, once the child grows up and is no longer requiring the the tutelage or the guardianship, that they can go on and, and live however they want. For forgetting the values that have been instilled in them for all those years. No, that's the opposite of what the, the goal of the guardian is for. The guardian is there to instill these things so that these values and these truths become internalized. So they can live them out in their lives. They don't have to think about it. It's just part of their nature. It's part of who they are that they, they go out and they live according to those things. And that's exactly, by the way, what the prophets foresaw. The prophets looked at a people who were stubborn and rebellious and wayward and who time and time again broke covenant. And they saw a day when God would so do a work in their lives that all those, the values, the essence of the law would then be what? Inscribed where? Oh, not on a tablet of stone, but upon the flesh of the heart, the very inner core of a person, that God, by a divine work, something supernatural, would do something right here so that the law would belong there. Paul is not indicating that Christians have no relation to the values of God's law. Paul's point here is just that we don't view the law anymore as a system of salvation. The law shows us what God is like and it shows us how very much unlike God we are, just how incapable we are of measuring up to his standards on our own. That's, by the way, the middle of chapter 7. The, the value, how the God's law reveals our sin. That's the heading in the NLT for verses 7 through 13. That's why the whole section is, is that the law is good, but it reveals something bad in me. And as such, it prepares me for what is coming next. Once one is freed from viewing their standing before God in relation to their inability to keep the law, and then see that all of life lived in the light of what Christ has done for us, Paul says, if that is you, If you have been freed from the law as a system of salvation, and if you've been freed to be justified by your faith, by grace through faith, then there is therefore now no condemnation for you to experience. Even though you have a history of sin, you are justified by grace through faith. Look again at verses three and four there in chapter eight. The law of Moses was unable to save us. Why? Because of the weakness of our sinful nature. It is not because the law was incomplete or insufficient. It's because its purpose was to reveal our need for more. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Salvation, therefore, is not about our efforts. It's not about our keeping up a standard. It is not about us being good or feeling good. That sort of therapeutic, moralistic deism, you probably heard about this idea that it's, religion is all about me feeling good and doing good and everyone goes to, to heaven in the end and God is some distant, you know, something out there. No, not at all. That's not what Paul is saying whatsoever. There's no room for that mentality ever in the gospel. Salvation is not about our efforts. It is about Christ and his efforts. 
what he has done for us. That phrase for us is repeated over and over and over in the first few verses of Romans chapter eight. It is what God has done on our behalf. And if you have faith in him and only in him, not faith in Jesus plus your ability to do stuff. Not faith in Jesus plus some set of rules. Not faith in Jesus and some other avenue or source or means of salvation in your life. No, if you have faith alone in Christ alone, there is no condemnation for you. You are justified. You are declared righteous. You have a right standing before a holy God. Do not diminish the weight of that reality. Do not take it for granted. Do not become comfortable with it in the sense that it's just something that just, oh yeah, (laughs) I'm justified. No, do not lose your awe and your respect and the deep sense of gratitude for that reality that God in Christ has made you right with him. He declares you righteous, not because you're good, (laughs) but because of Christ and all that Christ has done. He is the one who satisfies the requirements of the law. He's the one who fulfills it for us. And that, my friends, is very good news. Do you agree with that? That that is good news today? But you know what else? It is good news. But it's only half the good news. It's half of it. It's not the totality of the good news. It's just the first half. And it's almost like, God, you blessed me with this blessing that's beyond comprehension. I cannot wrap my mind around it. I, I, it will take all of eternity to probe the depths of this idea that I've been justified by grace through faith. I don't fully understand it now, and I may never fully understand it. And thanks be to God, we have the rest of forever to think about it and praise God for it. And God's like, well, you know what? That's just part of the story. I've got another blessing in store for you. (laughs) Being justified and having no condemnation is wonderful. But my question for you is, how does that on its own, resolve the problems described in chapter 7. How does being given a right standing and being declared righteous resolve the dilemma, the cry of the heart of the man in Romans 7? On its own. Look again at, verse, at chapter 7 with me. I'm going to read verses 14 through 24. Listen again to the the problem that this man, this rhetorical man, this rhetorical device that Paul's using to make a point, listen to the cry of the man's heart. Verse 14, so the trouble, remember, he's been talking about the, the goodness and the value of the law. The trouble is not with the law, it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law was good. 
In other words, there's a recognition of goodness, but also of the badness. The law is good, I am not. Verse 17, so I am not the one doing wrong, it's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. So even if there's a right desire in the heart, there's an inability to do what is right. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Do you hear it? Do you hear the problem? Do you hear the cry of his heart? It's the same one that every person in here has felt and experienced and may be still experiencing. It's not just the problem of condemnation. It is not just the problem of having a wrong standing for God. It is not merely the need to be justified. No, he says in verse 23, I am a slave to sin. There is a a principle, a power that dominates me. It is beyond my control. It is one that rules me and governs my life every day and every night, despite my best intentions, despite my hopes and my desires. And I'm here to tell you, church, if God's solution to that problem, not of the penalty of sin, but of the power of sin, if his solution is only ever to change our standing or our status before him, then what hope is there to ever live a life pleasing to God? Now there are some churches, some whole denominations, some whole theological traditions that will say, well, there is none. (laughs) There is no hope to ever live a life pleasing to God. Right? And so for them, chapter 7 is not a hypothetical person to make a point. It is not just a rhetorical device. For them, chapter 7 is the expected norm for the Christian life. And I bumped up against this time and time again all throughout my studies and all the years, not just in, in academics, but in everyday day-to-day life, talking with people about the, the nature of salvation and what, what the Christian experience is all about. I bumped up against it this week, l- reading commentaries and listening to sermons on this passage. Over and over and over again, there's this idea that chapter 7 is, is the Christian life. And that chapter 8 is nothing more than this nice target that we aim for out there somewhere. And there might be some of you here today that this, this is what you were taught. This is all you've ever heard. That we are, chapter 7 and chapter 8, it's a nice goal, right? It's a nice something to aim for and strive for, but you can forget about it in this life. It's not for today. It's for sometime tomorrow or for, so, or for somebody else, but not me. No, 
Romans 7 is where I am, and that's all I can ever hope for. And I want to tell you, that's not only bad theology, that's bad exegesis. That's not what the, what the text is saying. And those who force that are, are taking their, in my opinion, and I'm not trying to run anybody down here, this is just my objective assessment. Well, I guess it'd be my subjective assessment. I'm trying to be as objective as possible. <laughs> but from my assessment, it's just, it misses everything the text is saying. And not just here, it misses the whole tenor of the scriptures. It is unfaithful to the text to place all the discussion about holiness and righteousness or pleasing God exclusively in our position in Christ. Now, it is true that Christ's holiness, Christ's righteousness, Christ's obedience is imputed to us. It is attributed to us. I would never presume that it is my righteousness or my holiness or my obedience that makes me in right standing with God. Of course not. We're justified by grace, not by our works. We're justified by grace through faith. And that's as old as Abraham. How was Abraham made right with God? It wasn't by his sacrifices. It wasn't by his good deeds. It was by what? His faith. Uh, From cover to cover, it is justification by grace through faith. Even in the law. That's a whole other discussion. But even in the law, I don't think the essence of the law is you are justified by making the sacrifices. Because the, the, the Israelite who's presenting the sacrifices is doing it recognizing that they themselves are in need of a sacrifice on their behalf. And they're putting their faith that God will give them right standing by his grace. They may not have articulated it that way or fully understood it that way, but I'm convinced that it's grace. You are saved by grace through faith from cover to cover. And it is true. God attributes the work of Christ to us. It's, it's righteousness imputed to us. Absolutely. But chapter 8 says there's more. It's not just that. Look again at verse 2. To me, verse 2, if we're talking about a pinnacle chapter, verse 2 is the, is the tip of the mountain. It's the tip. Look again in verse 2. This is crucial to understanding the good news. It is crucial to understanding the nature of salvation and and life in Christ, the spirit-filled life. Paul says, because you belong to Christ, the power, the power, the power, the power, the power of the life-giving spirit has done what? It has freed you. Freed me from what, Pastor Sean? The penalty of sin? Well, yeah. He wipes the slate clean. You're no longer condemned. Verse 1. I can stand before God justified. Even though I have a history of sin. Even though I'm a, a wreck as I stand now. I'm not, I haven't reached some sort of, just because I've been justified doesn't mean suddenly I'm absolutely perfect like God is. You can never hope for that in this life or any life. None of us will ever be absolutely perfect like God. God has no history of sin. You and I do. And yet we can stand before him justified and made right. The life-giving power of the Spirit, yes, absolutely, frees us from from the guilt and the consequences and the legal status of sin. But that's not what Paul says here in verse two, is it? Because you belong to Christ, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. (sighs) 
it's only because of this reality that Paul can say in verse four that, you, that to no longer follow the sinful nature can become the reality of our lives. That there is grace to move out of the dungeons of Romans 7 and into the freedom of chapter 8 in this life. Today, you can move from chapter 7 to chapter 8, not because of how good a life you live or because of how you have, what you have done. or what, No, but because of the power of the Spirit at work in you. A supernatural work of grace that empowers you to not just be declared righteous, but to be righteous to live righteously. Power over sin today. And we can follow the Spirit. And must, by the way. Because he'll say in verse 6 that letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to what? It leads to death. And in verse 8, that those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. If you are living according to the flesh, you cannot please God. But if you live according to the Spirit, you absolutely can please God. So how do we move from chapter 7 to chapter 8? That's the big question, isn't it? As you're no doubt thinking about your own life and you're assessing it and you're thinking like, oh my goodness. All right, Pastor Sean. And I feel the same way. I have lived in chapter 7 many times, many years. How do we move from there to here? Well, there's a lot that we can say here, and we're going to take this week and next week to explore this. But for the sake of just this morning, given the time we have, I'm going to say this. You move from chapter 7 to chapter 8 through the objective work of Christ and the subjective work of the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 3. Right there in the middle of verse 3, 3b, I'm going to divide 3 into three uh, parts. The the second part, right in the middle, it says, God sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. He's talking about what? He's talking about the incarnation, isn't he? That God himself took on flesh. He took on the totality of our human nature. He wasn't partly human. He wasn't three-quarters human. He wasn't sort of a half, you know, he took, he took bits of the human nature, but other bits, no, he took on human nature, just like you and I have. And right there in the very fortress where sin has established its seat of power, Christ came to attack and to conquer it in the flesh. In us, as us, God himself has broken sin's power over the human nature. The objective work of Jesus breaks the power of sin at work in the human condition. As Pastor Chuck argued from this very place just a few, well, a couple weeks ago now, he said that the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the objective ground for all salvation and holiness. If you want to say, how can anyone be saved? How can anyone be made holy? How can anyone move from chapter 7 to chapter 8? You start right there with who Jesus is and what he did. In that body, verse 3 continues, God declared an end. There's the declaration language. He declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, God, for the objective work of Christ on the cross and what that has done to the human condition and what you have declared as a result of it. 
But then he says in verse 2, that what Christ has done in his body for all of mankind corporately is available to us individually by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me and in you. That the Spirit comes to your life person to person and he applies all the benefits of what Christ has done to you. The, all the, the benefits of the atonement, all the, the, the right standing, the, the, the right declaration, the freedom from the penalty of sin, and that life-saving power. He applies it all to your life as an individual. That you are not just declared holy, but the work of the Spirit is to actually make you holy. That you don't just have Christ's standing, but the Holy Spirit's power over sin. Conversion and regeneration. Justification and sanctification. Relative change and a real change. Victory over sin's penalty, victory over sin's power. That is the whole gospel. The whole gospel. In this church, this denomination, this theological tradition, and I believe the heart of Christendom for, for 2,000 years, it is the whole gospel. Not some watered down, sliced, sliced up, diced version of it. No, the whole gospel. But you know, as I know, after last week especially, that we are living in the already but not yet, aren't we? There is a sense in which these things are available to us now, that there is a, a holiness, a righteousness that is possible for the Christian today. But there's also a sense in which these things lack a fullness or a completion that is yet to come. I think every Bible-believing Christian would agree with that, but we tend to place those waypoints on the spectrum of the Christian experience differently, right? You know, how much is for today? How much is for the end? What is possible now in the present, in this life? What do we have to wait for in the life to come? And there is room. There is room to debate and discuss these things. We don't draw such a hard line in the sand that we can't have a discussion with people who don't agree completely with us. There's room to grapple with these issues. And I, I wouldn't claim to have it all figured out myself. But my question for you this morning, this is where I want to bring some application as we wrap this message up and bring it to a close. My question for you this morning is this. Do you feel like you are living in Romans 7 today? As you assess your life and you think about, you think about your Christian experience, day to day, in public and in private, at church, not at church, in every relationship, as you assess where you are and what is going on in your life, are you living in Romans chapter 7 today? And even more than that, is that your expectation? Is that all you expect out of the Christian experience in this life? Is that what you've just settled on? That Romans 7 is it? Or is there more? If you're living in Romans 7, I want to declare to you the good news. That there is now, that, don't miss the word in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And <laughs> it's still in the now. Now there is no condemnation and 
because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Do you belong to Christ Jesus? Are you living all of life in the power of his spirit? If so, church, don't, don't settle for less than God's best for your life. Don't settle for chapter seven when he, by his grace, by a supernatural work in your life, can and will and is desperate to move you to chapter eight. We have much to celebrate in this church today and we're not done celebrating, but there is nothing more incredible than what God has made possible for your life today through his son and by his spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's all we, we could ever ask for. It's truth that changes us. It's truth that, yes, saves us, but it, it transforms us from the inside out. Holy Spirit, Jesus called you the spirit of truth. And you want to come and not just reveal truth to us. You want to apply it. Inscribe it at the very core of, of my person. And maybe we don't fully understand what all that means or what all that looks like. And we, we have questions, but Lord, you, you haven't asked us to have a full comprehension of it all. You, you ask us to have faith. And Lord, that is what I pray for this people here today. That you would enable them to believe these truths today. I know for a fact that not everyone in here has been raised in a, a Wesleyan holiness tradition. They, they haven't been raised in a church and discipled by Christians who, who understood things this way or articulated them this way or even believed in this way. And Lord, they have, they have bought into the, the smallness of a half gospel. Oh Lord, I pray that you enable them to have faith for more today. It is not a faith in what they can do. It is a faith in what you can do and want to do and what they can become because of it. All of salvation, every aspect of it, both justification and sanctification, is received by grace through faith. So Lord, give us the faith to believe today. Give us the faith to trust. Give us the faith to obey. Give us the faith to walk in the fullness of the Spirit the spirit that leads to life, declared righteous, but made righteous, and more and more righteous day after day after day. And through that, Lord, you will be glorified because it will be a work that only you can do. None of us can do it on our own. We felt that in chapter seven. We've lived that, but we believe there's more and you are the one who can do it. Lord, would you do it in our midst, I pray. In Jesus' name, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.